Uh, let's go ahead and open up your Bibles, your hard copies or your digital versions there to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 7 through 21. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going on vacation. And in retrospect, I was fascinated that the, many of the, the changes of scenery and kind of the order that the scenery changes was very similar to the changes of scenery in the passage that we are going to read today. Uh, we went up to the UP. We camped on the, sh uh, the shores of Lake Superior, and it was absolutely gorgeous. A couple of different campgrounds, and one place in Munising was the, the you know, Lake Superior. The, the waters were just like completely peaceful and still, and it was gorgeous, the sunsets on them. And then we went up uh, to the Porcupine Mountains and camped on the lakeshore there as well, but it was completely different. It was just the crashing waves all night long. You could just hear the, the waters roar, and, and it was gorgeous and beautiful. And so we went up to the UP and camped on the uh, shores of Lake Superior, and then we went into the Porcupine Mountains. We hiked up into the mountains, and then afterwards, we were thoroughly tired. We all came home. Uh, Eunice and I, we went up with Matt and Jessica and, and uh, Nick and Sarah as well. And uh, for some reason, there was this great crowd of 13 kids that followed us everywhere we went the whole entire time. And uh, very similar to Jesus in this passage today, he started off in the synagogue, as uh, John Paternoster shared last week, and he went out to the shores, to the seashore, and then he went up in the mountains, and constantly there was this great crowd that was following with him. Uh, but I want to review a little bit about what John shared with us last week from the last half of chapter 2 and starting off in chapter 6, or of chapter 3, verse 6. Um, uh, John was talking about how people were not happy with, uh, with Jesus and his disciples. And they were questioning the disciples specifically, saying, you know, why, why Jesus, are your, uh, your disciples not uh, fasting when John's disciples and the Pharisees are? And not only that, not only are they not fasting, but they're plucking heads of grain uh, and they're eating them on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no. So not only are they not fasting, but they're eating in a wrong way. And to make matters even worse, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Now for us today, those kind of questions and problems would be the least of our worries. Who's concerned or arguing about when to fast or when to eat? You know, maybe when to eat. I mean, we might argue about, hey, it's time to eat, let's eat. But generally, we're not arguing about these sort of things. We wouldn't look at them and say, this is a, you know, what's the big deal with this? We don't, it's hard for us to really understand. But in the time of Jesus, these issues were huge infractions of both religious and social law. That is why the last verse in uh, the passage that John read, the one right before our passage today, says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, and they plotted on how to destroy Jesus. The plot to kill him had begun. Now, the Pharisees were upset that Jesus was blatantly and flagrantly defying the Talmud. Now, some of you might be like, what is the Talmud? What's, what is this thing? And I want, to, I want to tell you a little bit about the Talmud. The Talmud, while biblically based, is a compilation of over hundreds of years of the teachings and the legal opinions of the rabbis who were attempting to explain and expound on the law of Moses. 
all right? So it's a compilation of rabbis' teachings over spanning hundreds and hundreds of years, and they were trying to explain and ended up expounding on the law of Moses. So imagine not just our Constitution, okay? That's kind of the, the laws that govern our land, and the Talmud was kind of explaining the law of Moses that governed their land. So imagine not just our Constitution, but the Constitution with every Supreme Court case that has sought to define what the Constitution means and to bring clarity to that. Those opinions issued in the court cases before the, high, the, the Supreme Court, um, they end up establishing what is called precedent. And those, those precedents almost are held at the same level of the Constitution itself. And that's what the Talmud essentially is. It's a record of these rabbis' opinions that not only seek to explain the law of Moses, but they also ended up expanding and adding to it. It became an extra set of laws to help prevent everyone from breaking God's law. So a set of laws that were trying to protect the ultimate offense of breaking law of Moses, God's law. And that sounds really good on the surface, doesn't it? You're like, wow, yeah, we want to be really careful to make sure that we honor and obey God. But similar to our own legal system, when well-meaning judges and lawyers attempt to clarify a seemingly basic law, sometimes what they end up doing instead is making matters even worse, leading to more laws that lent to even less clarity and less understanding, many times making the original intent of the, the law, it clouds it and sometimes goes directly against the original intent of the law they were trying to clarify. And that's the problem with the Talmud. According to the Talmud, in the emergency situation, and I think you're familiar with this, in an emergency situation, when a per, if a person is injured on the Sabbath, someone who is coming to help them can only stabilize them. They can't actively, you know, make them get better. They can just stabilize them for, for that moment. And, uh, you know, they don't want them to get too much better on the Sabbath. And Jesus was challenging this way of thinking. He asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And there were crickets in the synagogue when he asked this, what should have been a seemingly simple question. If their focus was truly on the law of Moses and the heart of God that underlied that law, the answer would be absolutely clear. And Jesus was pointing out their hypocrisy. They held to their sacred religious traditions above God's law and his care for basic human needs. John Paternoster said it well when he said Jesus couldn't fit into the traditions of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees didn't fit very well into the pure and undefiled religion that Jesus was teaching them and that what God expected. And they hated him for it and they sought to destroy Jesus. This is a cautionary passage here that should serve to warn us of our own legalistic tendencies and following rules, checking boxes, all the while totally missing out on the heart of God that underlies God's law and his love for his people. So that leads us into our passage today. The crowds were seeking out Jesus. Uh, they have been steadily growing in their number. 
where before Jesus could, you know, he couldn't even enter a city because the crowds were thronging about him so much. He was forced to go out in the wilderness to preach where he could go out in the wilderness to preach before. Now he can hardly even stand on dry land because the crowds have grown to the point that they threaten to crush him. Word has spread. People have heard about this man, Jesus, the man who heals diseases and casts out demons and teaches with authority and even dares to openly defy the traditions of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we read this passage from Scripture today that you will use it to to confront us, that you will use it to convict us, that you will use it to help us uh, to grow to be more like Jesus. Teach us, Lord. Pray your, your spirit will work within each one of us in helping us to, uh, to see your glory, to see your goodness, to see uh, your heart that underlies uh, the, the law of Moses and all the things that you teach us and say, God, may we, may we see you and know you and taste and see your goodness, Lord. We pray that you will be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read from this passage in Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark chapter three, starting off in verse seven says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him, and he pointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Buenerges. I don't know how to say that, in all honesty. That was a really tough one for me. That is the sons of thunder. That I know how to say. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so after Jesus went out to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he healed the man with the withered hand, he confronted the the Pharisees with their hypocrisy, we are told here that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Withdrawing has that idea of pulling back and retiring from, breaking off engagement. And it's not immediately clear if Jesus was trying to intentionally get away from these crowds or just was transitioning to another location, perhaps with the specific intent of finding a place where he could preach without being crushed by the crowds. But either way, the crowds followed him. And the size of the crowd had grown to an extent that it had not before. In verse 7, it says, there's a great crowd. Now, I don't think that's the same way that I would say to all of you this morning, hey, y'all been a great crowd. Thanks, guys. He's talking not about the, the quality of the crowd, but the quantity. This is a great crowd, an expansive crowd. 
um, because word had spread, um, you know, not just, this wasn't Jesus just pulling from the local town, city, or county through which he was traveling. Word had spread nationally and even beyond in the surrounding areas. And so it was pulling people from, from a much broader area. It says from Galilee, which would be like northern Israel, the UP for us. Galilee, up in the north. Judea and Jerusalem is southern Israel. Uh, even beyond southern Israel, there is a land below Israel called Adumea, and that's the deep, the deep south, the land of Edom. You might remember Jacob's brother Esau. It was his descendants in this land that lived down there. And so uh, from the north to the south to the deep south, and also to the east, beyond the land of, uh, beyond the Jordan River, that's to the east, uh, which was also an area where many Jews, Israelites, lived. And then to the, to the west, to the west coast of the ancient Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast uh, in modern-day Lebanon. And those were the cities of Tyre and Sidon. So you see how this, this word was spreading in scope and was getting around. And so in verse 8, we continue. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It's not difficult to understand why the crowds were coming to Jesus and had amassed. People wanted to be healed. Of course they would come. But what is difficult for me to comprehend personally is why these demon-possessed people would even be present in, you know, present and in close proximity to where Jesus is preaching and teaching. Look at verse 11. It says, And whenever these unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Why were those people who were demon-possessed in proximity, close proximity to Jesus, the Son of God? They knew who he was. And they knew probably what he would do. Why were they even there? Again, I would assume that demons would not willingly want to seek out the Son of God. They knew his authority and they knew their place. There was no question when Jesus cast them out, they weren't like, I don't know if you have authority. There was no question. They left. At most, there might have been a conversation of, well, okay, we're going to leave, but can we go into the pigs where they could go next? That was the most. There was no question when Jesus cast them out whether they were to go or not. Surely they were not eager to be cast out of and lose their homes. So why were these demon-possessed people even in close proximity to Jesus? So why were these demon-possessed people there? Were they forcefully brought by friends, similar to the paralyzed man? He wasn't forcefully brought necessarily, but did other people see their condition and bring them to him? Possibly. We don't know for certain. But part of me wonders if they were there not accidentally or coincidentally, but instead intentionally, with the purpose intent of causing chaos and confusion to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of people, the very people that Jesus had come to preach to. See, this was son Jesus, the son of God. And these demons knew who he was and that they could not stop him. But there were also the sons and daughters of Adam that were present. And these people were susceptible to the lies and the schemes of Satan. And that is something that they could work with. Imagine the, the birds that would come and eat the sower's seeds in the parable that Jesus taught. 
So we have these unclean spirits or these demons that would say, you are the son of God. Now, while demons were indeed speaking this amazing truth that is true, we must remember that Satan is the father of what? Lies. Satan and his servants have this way of distorting, confusing, and twisting the truth and making it into something completely different and false. Exactly what Satan did in the garden, quoting God, but twisting it just enough to deceive Eve with that fruit. Now, I don't want to hit on this too hard because my brother Brent Nesseth will be sharing on this uh, passage next week. But I think this is part of the reason why in the verses immediately following our passage today, the religious leaders accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan and casting out demons through the power of Satan. This demonic testimony of Jesus would have led the people to a conclusion completely opposite of what the demons were saying. Jesus wasn't the son of God, but was instead operating under the power of Satan. That was the conclusion. And so again, this is what I think, that the demons were not just simply rolling over and submitting by confessing that Jesus is the son of God. I think they were trying to get in a parting jab, a parting shot in on Jesus, actively trying to undermine Jesus and his ministry and the people that he came to save. And this is part of the reason why Jesus commanded the demons to be silent when identifying him. They were twisting the truth and bearing a false testimony and leading people to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus was sent from and what he had come to do. So zooming out from that a little bit, we are reminded of this broader question that we've been faced with, I think this is the third time through the book of Mark. Why is it that Jesus commanded demons and the people that, many times the people that he healed, to be quiet and not to speak of the miracles or of, uh, or of Jesus and who he is when he casted out the demons? Why is that? And I want to delve into that question a little bit more and give you a couple of reasons. First one is because of practical reasons. Um, the crowds, like Jesus had, what was Jesus' main point in coming? Was to preach the kingdom of God. And these crowds who heard about this man, Jesus, who was healing, they were thronging to come and be healed and not wanting to necessarily come and be preached to and listen to what Jesus was saying. And so I think some of that was making it more difficult for Jesus to do the very thing, his primary purpose, and was preaching. The second reason I think that Jesus commanded silence was uh, in John 7, 4, 6. It tells us, it's the second thing is timing. Now in this passage in John 7, uh, 4 through 6, Jesus' brothers who did not believe in Jesus came and confronted him, were kind of challenging him and saying, you need to go and make yourself known to the world. You need to go show everybody. Stop doing all this secret stuff. You are who you say you are, and I don't think they were saying this encouragingly. They are like, go show yourself to the world. And Jesus' response was, my time has not yet come. Jesus had a sense of the right time of when uh, he would need to reveal himself to the world. And ultimately, that was on the cross and through his death, burial, and ultimately resurrection. That is the time for the whole world to truly see who Jesus is. The next one is prophetic. There are prophetic reasons, and this deals with timing. In Matthew 12, 15 through 21, Uh, It says that Jesus healed them all and ordered them not to make him known, and it tells us why. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42. It tells us. 
Now, I want to take a moment to talk about this prophecy because I think it helps us to understand the nature of the crowd and also the spiritual reason, the spiritual dynamic that Jesus commanded silence in the demons and the, of the people who were being healed. In Isaiah 42, it describes Jesus. It says he will, it kind of describes him as this meek and mild person. It says he will not quarrel or cry aloud. But this is the part that was interesting to me. It says, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's like, why won't anyone hear his voice in the streets? Everything that we've read so far in Jesus' public ministry is he's constantly traveling around. Everywhere he goes, not just the cities, but out in the wilderness, there are crowds and throngs of people who are following him. Even when he goes home, these, these crowds are following him, cutting holes in his roofs to come in and bring people to him. And he is preaching all the while. Why does Isaiah 42 say that, um, why does Isaiah say, 42 say that no one will hear his voice in the streets? It's not because Jesus isn't preaching, and it's not because there wasn't a crowd. I mean, perhaps there wasn't any sound system or a Chris Carey to run that. And as good as Chris is, I don't think that's the reason why people couldn't hear. I think the problem the crowd had is the same problem King Herod had. In Luke 23, it says, Herod saw Jesus. This was part of Jesus' trial before he was crucified. It says that King Herod was very glad very glad, for he had longed and desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him. You're kind of like, oh, King Herod, bless his heart, he wanted to see Jesus. But listen why he wanted to see Jesus. King Herod wanted to see Jesus because he was hoping to see a sign done by him. The heart of Herod was the heart of the majority in the crowd. People didn't hear Jesus because they were fixated on the miracles and not on the message. And I think this is part of, the, part of the spiritual component of why God commanded the silence of those he healed and of the demons also. Because physical, uh, Jesus told the people to remain silent because physical healing wasn't the main message he wanted them to hear. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus had compassion on people and so he healed them. But the people who were being healed were going and communicating the wrong and incomplete message to others. Come, come and see this man who can heal you of your physical sickness and disease. Yes, he can do that. But he can do so much more than that. But all, could people, could, all that the crowd was hearing and coming for was not for the message, but for the signs. So that's the, the last reason, I think, that God commanded silence is the spiritual reason. People would be easily distracted away from Jesus and his primary purpose of preaching the kingdom and of forgiveness and of salvation and instead focus on this physical healing and thereby totally missing out on their greatest need. Now, people were coming for the show and not for the message of the gospel. And many times, people come to church for the same exact reason don't they? Uh, the heart of man hasn't truly changed. We still like a good show. So moving on, we have the next scene change. It says in verse 13 here, and Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. 
Again, this is a scene change where Jesus was once at the sea and he was surrounded by the crowds, almost being, you know, threatened to be crushed by them. Now he went up on the mountain and is as by himself alone, at least at first. Now, Mark's account here, true to form, is plowing super fast through the account of, of Jesus' life and public ministry. He's going at breakneck speed, and he's not including a lot of the details that we find in uh, Matthew and Luke. The same account that we are reading here in Mark 3, Luke doesn't get to the same account until Luke 6, and Matthew doesn't get it until Matthew 10. And so by my math, Mark is going like two times as fast as Luke, and it's going three times as fast as Matthew. I mean, again, he's just kind of like giving you the bare bones details here. But to understand what all is going here, I think it's good for us to look at Luke and Matthew because they add a few important details, uh, one specifically that I want to highlight here. In Luke 6.12, talking about the same this, uh, this, uh, talking about this same account here, Jesus going up to the mountain. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain. He doesn't stop where Mark said. He goes on to where Mark stopped. He went on to say, Jesus went up to the mountain to, can you guess it? Pray. Went up to the mountain to pray. Not only did he go up to the mountain to pray, he went up to the mountain to pray all night. He continued, it says, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, first off, I want to stop, and I want to give all of you night owls some encouragement. Raise your hand if you're a night owl. That's it. I thought there'd be more of us. I'm a night owl as well. This blessed my heart. <laughs> Jesus prayed all night. How many times have you heard a sermon on Mark 1.35, I think it was, where it said, Jesus rose while it was still dark and went out to pray. And then the whole rest of the sermon, I can't totally diminish it because it's right. The whole rest of the sermon says, if you want to be spiritually disciplined and a good person, you need to get up in the morning and you need to go pray. It's totally true. That's, that's good. I don't want to just, don't hear me wrong. That's good to do. Don't not do it. But I want you to understand that's not the full and complete picture about when Jesus prayed. That's not the only time that you can pray. You can be just as spiritually disciplined if you pray at night, late at night, and through the night. I just want to point that out for all of you today. Can I hear an amen from all you night owls? I expect a little bit more noise from y'all, but it's still early. Yeah. Now, I don't want to cause division between morning people and your night owls, but it seems to me that there are more times recorded in Scripture where Jesus is praying in the evening and at night and through the night than is mentioned in the morning. Again, not to compare, but Scripture might be on my side. Um, I gave some of these verses. I think uh, Brenda now has a new life verse. I tried to encourage my sister Brenda in the office this week with some passages of scripture, and I'm gonna throw out some words of encouragement for all of you night owls today. Psalm 119.62, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinance. How many of you super spiritually disciplined people have done that lately? Acts 16.25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They didn't really have a choice. They were trying to sleep. <laughs> 
Psalm 119, 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Psalm 119, 55, oh Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. And Psalm 134, 1, behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Amen, night owls? Amen. So point here for all of you kids on your kid sheet here is we can pray all day and night. Like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ in Christ Jesus. We can pray all the time as part of our spiritual discipline. But this time of prayer is important because whenever Jesus prays, especially through the night, we know that something really is important is about to happen. You know, it's easy to, to think back to, to the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. Jesus was out and praying earnestly to God for direction, for his will to be done. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this prayer uh, on the mountain through the night. He's seeking God's will specifically in who will be chosen as his 12 apostles. And so what was so critical about the calling of 12 apostles that made it, you know, that, that warranted Jesus praying for this so intensely? Why did Jesus call the 12 apostles? I think I've got five reasons here. First, we find in verse 14, it says in verse 14, so that he might be with him. This is a relational component that's so crucial and, and important. It would be really easy to skip over this and go straight to the task of what Jesus was calling them to. But it's important to remember that closeness to Jesus equips us for the task. Closeness to Jesus equips us for the task. The task doesn't happen if first he doesn't call us to be close to him in relationship. I'm reminded of, of Acts 13.4, and uh, it's the, the uh, account of, Peter and John, when they were called before the Sanhedrin uh, to come and give an account of themselves. And when the, uh, Peter and John, they, they ended up giving a testimony and witnessing before them. And it says that the Sanhedrin perceived that they were uneducated, common men. These weren't special guys. They were just uneducated, common men. But what set them apart, what astonished them, and they took note, is that they had been with Jesus. That's the defining element of everything that we do in our lives and ministry is closeness to Jesus. If we stray from Jesus, we can't minister. And so that closeness to Jesus defines uh, ministry, uh, the ministry that we do and the effectiveness that comes from that. And so that's the first reason of why it was so important, you know, that Jesus called the 12 apostles is so that he might be with them and be close to them. The second reason is he called them for a task. In verse 14, it says that Jesus called these 12 specifically to send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Well, what were they preaching? What were these guys saying? The same message of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching. In Matthew 10, 7, it says they were told to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't know if that was Jesus' complete script to them. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't know if they elaborated that, expanded a whole lot more on it. Part of me was kind of like, man, I wish that was my script. You're probably wishing that was my script for this morning. Kingdom of heaven at hand, let's pray and let's go home. But that was the preaching, that was what they were preaching. The kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come, the Messiah has come. 
for, with forgiveness. When there's repentance, there's forgiveness through the Messiah. This is the message that they had come to preach. Not only they had come to preach, but they had come to cast out demons. Or, I'm sorry, they were commanded to cast out demons. And Matthew includes more details of what Jesus commanded them to go and do. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus told them to, uh, to go and heal the sick. Go and raise the dead. Wow. Uh, go cleanse the lepers. Go and cast out demons. Now, Mark leaves out a lot of these uh, details almost to emphasize the point that their task is go proclaim the truth and, ca- and casting out demons. They are going and squelching the lies and the deception and the, you know, what Satan is trying to do to rob that, those seeds of the gospel from being planted in the people. And so it's almost like Mark is highlighting, contrasting you know, this, these roles of what, what he's calling his disciples to do. The third reason is because the laborers are few. This is why it was so important. It's interesting, again, in the account of Matthew, right before Jesus called the 12 disciples, Jesus said this to them. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I think this is exactly why Jesus was, what he was also praying up on the mountaintop. At this point, Jesus, remember, Jesus is the only one at this point that is preaching the kingdom. John the Baptist was also, you know, preaching repentance. He was baptizing with this message of repentance. But Jesus is the only one teaching and preaching this message of the kingdom. And we can see from the crowds and the throngs of crowds and this growing, the more he's preaching, the more these crowds come, we see that this need is great. And, and uh, I, I, I'm kind of scared to say, but gr- greater than Jesus in his humanity was able to fill and do. There was more people, more needs. And, and as part of God's glorious plan and purpose in this world in sending Jesus, he has decided to use his church to fill that need in the world. The need is great. The harvest is great and the labors are few. And so in the selection of the 12, it's really a selection of people to start the church to fulfill that great calling and ministry of fulfilling the great commission here. And that's the fourth reason is the task was great. While this task was limited, this immediate task that Jesus was calling his disciples to was limited in scope, they went out, they came back, it was a short period of time, and they were also instructed to only go to the Israelites, to the Jews, they weren't to go to the Gentiles as of yet. They went out and they came back, Uh, but even though this task was limited, I think Jesus was starting to prepare them for a much greater task, the Great Commission. Like it says in Mark 16, 15, says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Jesus was preparing his apostles to go. And that's what apostle means, sent ones. There are ones that are sent. And so the fifth reason is Jesus was building the foundations of the church. Jesus knew that his time on this earth was uh, quickly coming to an end. He knew he was headed to the cross And so he began laying the foundations for what would become the church. And so that's why it was so important that he goes up to the mountain and to pray all night. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 tells us about this foundation. It says, uh, talking about the church at large and all of us as 
part of the part of the church. So, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple, into the Lord. Now let's look at that same question, uh, you know, from a little bit different perspective. Why did Jesus call the 12 uh, apostles specifically? We don't have time to go through each individual apostle. You'll be glad to know. And we're going to look at them kind of as a grouping. Why did Jesus call the 12 apostles specifically? What made Peter, James, and John, Andrew, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, what made them so special that Jesus chose them? Now, me looking at it, I would say at least four of them, what made them so special is they were amazing fishermen. I think that really, like, makes them qualified individuals. I don't know if most people would agree with me on that. But really, when we look at it, there's nothing other than the fact that God chose them. I mean, we remember looking at the Acts 4.13 passage. When the, even when the Sanhedrin looked at Peter and John, they were like, these are uneducated, unschooled, common men. What makes them so special? Nothing other than that Jesus had called them to come close, to come near, to be in relationship with them. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that is one of the most beautiful truths, but also one of the most humbling so kids in your kids' sheets, the, the next fill in the blank there for you is being invited to be close to Jesus is an honor we don't deserve. None of us do. The apostles didn't deserve it, and we don't deserve that either when Jesus calls us to be close, to be called his friends. Finally, we have another scene change here in the last portion of Scripture here in verses 20 through 21, where Jesus was originally at the sea presumably in the boat so he wouldn't get crushed by the crowds. Then he went to the mountain where his, he called the 12 uh, apostles to come and join him, and he sent them out. Now he has come home. Verse 20 through 21 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, I'm not sure how best to characterize this portion, you know, this last portion of Scripture here. If I had to pick one word, and it's based more on, you know, we, we don't know the emotions and how Jesus took things and, you know, how to interpret them precisely. But as I looked at that, I was like, if I picked one word, I'd say that's discouragement. That's just discouraging. I mean, uh, when I'm busy and when I'm tired, I've been working and trying to do the Lord's work, I always like to take solace in, in knowing that I can go home and I can get a good meal, right? That I can go home, get a good meal, rest up, and go, not only that, but know that, I, for the most part, my family still loves me. They still support me. They encourage me. You know, and that, that is of great comfort for me as a pastor, knowing that that is always there, a wonderful thing. And yet, for Jesus to be literally on this mountaintop experience, you know, with these crowds following him, doing all these healings, casting out demons, praying all night, praying for a God to bring laborers 
to come and help gather in the harvest. And God providing what would be the foundation for the ultimate church that would fulfill that purpose. I mean, this is a huge shift in ministry. They're making some massive strides in what would become the church. There are some huge mountaintop experiences here. And he goes home and it says he can't eat. That would discourage me. If I, you told me right now, John, you can't eat when you go home in, in uh, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, I'd probably cry. I didn't eat breakfast. I mean, that would just be demoralizing to me. I would be in a state of utter depression. Jesus is not me. I know, but I can't help. I, why did they put in that point? I mean, it's to emphasize, yeah, the crowds are still following, and they're still surrounding the point that it's hard for even to take a time away. But not only can he not eat, but he, his, his family comes, his brothers come, and they, they try to help him to withdraw because they think he's crazy. They think something's wrong. In, in the book of John, it says that his brothers don't believe. If you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, then all the things that you see him doing can only be perceived in one way. Craziness, ludicrous. Why do you want to go and tick off all the religious leaders and break all the laws that we hold sacred and dear in our culture? Why would you do that? That's crazy. If you don't believe in who Jesus is, everything he does can only be perceived in that way. Craziness. And so this has got to be discouraging for Jesus. You know, in that passage where Jesus says that a prophet is never accepted in his own home, I think there's a lot more like emotional, you know, like hurt than what would seem to us. I don't think it's just kind of like, yeah, they don't like me because, you know, I'm a prophet and all. And I think this is deeply personal that his friends, people he grew up with, his own family who knew him, they didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. That had to hurt. So I can't even imagine what this felt like to Jesus. Jesus himself, again, said that a prophet is never accepted in their own home. And then he turns to us and says, I think it was in, uh, in John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, I'm going to change that a little bit, if you will. Give me some liberty. If the world thinks, you're, thinks that, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. If the world thinks you're crazy, know first that it thought Jesus was crazy. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, thinks you're crazy. Remember that the, world, uh, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And kids, this is another point here, is God's opinion is the only one that matters. In closing... You know, as I'm looking through this passage, uh, you know, you, these accounts in Scripture that are kind of, you know, documenting the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, sometimes it's hard to look at it like in, through the epistles and the letters that Paul writes where he's like, you know, where, where uh, direct commands or instructions are given. And sometimes in these, uh, these passages, we don't see those clear commands. We see accounts of what happened. And we look at them and, and we have to ask the question, God, why have you given this to us? How, what can we take and we, how can we learn and grow from that, this? This is not just knowledge. Just FYI, just so you know, if you got, you know, you're on a Bible 
a Bible trivia show one day. You need to know this kind of stuff. I don't think that's why, why Mark and, and Matthew and Luke and John are giving us account of Jesus. I think there are those spiritual takeaways. And it's, but sometimes it's hard to pinpoint one. But there is one that I think is worth pinpointing. And it's actually not in Mark, but it's in the a sister account in Matthew here. In Matthew 9.37, we already read it once. Jesus said to his disciples, before, before he chose the apostles, before he went up to the mountaintop and he prayed all night, before all that, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. Jesus invited his disciples to come, come with him and join him in praying earnestly that laborers would come and join together in the harvest. I can't, I don't know when the disciples were praying this, if they ever imagined that God might be choosing them to be part of the answer to the very prayer that he called them to pray. Does that make sense? You know, so many times when, you know, God commands us to pray for certain things in Scripture, so many times when people ask for you to pray for something, whatever that might be, it's really, really easy, easy for us to be, God, you know, God, I pray for laborers for the harvest so that the, the, the need is great, and you to be glorified in the world and for, for this harvest to be brought in. I pray for missionaries to go and bring the message of Jesus Christ to the world. We personalize that too. Again, praying for other people. God, I pray for this person and all these needs, you know, that you will fill them and meet them. And I think it's easy for us to pray those things and never imagine that God, or think that God might want us to be part of the very prayer that we are praying. He, God wants us to possibly be the answer, part of the answer to the prayers that we are praying. And that's my challenge for all of us today. You know, again, people pray, you know, that people will share gospel with your kids. Maybe God wants you to share the gospel with your kids. People pray that God will, you know, send people on the mission field. Maybe God wants you to go to the mission field. You know, a lot of times we pray that God will encourage someone. They need encouragement. How does God want to use you to encourage that person? You know, we pray, God, bring unity in our church. How does God want you to be part of the answer of that and bringing unity in the church? Pray for whatever it is, but we need to be receptive and willing and saying, God, how might you want to use me in, in helping to be an answer to what I'm praying to you for? Because we are God's hands and feet. We are his people, his children. And we have been called, we have been sent out to reflect his glory and his goodness. When people see us and us doing his will, they see God himself. We, are, we have been called um, to reflect his glory and goodness. And so that's my closing challenge for all of us today, is how might God want to use you to be the answer to the prayers that he has called us to pray and to grow and reflect his glory.